0: Well, this morning we're gonna do a lot of Bible reading. Uh, There's a number of passages of Scripture that we're gonna go through. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have an app on your phone, then all of them will be on the screen. But we're really looking at a passage of Scripture that is asking us to think about what does true faith really look like? What's the evidence of true faith? And I want to kind of set this and embed this within Uh, what I would say is a biblical, holistic approach to salvation and faith. That God is at work to restore all things, all things in heaven and on earth, back under his reign. And that he's inviting us as Jesus followers into that renewing and restoring of all things back under his reign, that we would participate as people of Jesus' followers in this renewing of Jesus' kingdom reign over all things. We are brought in to be like and to do like Jesus. And our being, who we are, should impact our doing. And if our doing doesn't look like Jesus, then we have to question whether we really are who we say we are. Our being should lead to our doing, and that should look something like Jesus. I've mentioned Ayodeji Adewuya already in this series on James. He's an African biblical scholar I found him helpful and challenging, particularly with our Western cultural mindset, that he comes bringing an African worldview that in truth is far more aligned with the worldview of the culture of the Bible than our divided Western Christianity. He talks about the fact that in Western Christianity, we tend to create a dichotomy, we divide, we split things up instead of seeing them holistically, which means that we separate what shouldn't be separated. We separate things like soul from body or spirit from matter rather than seeing it as a whole. And because of that, we sometimes see words like faith and salvation as just matters of spirit or spiritual rather than God's salvation, which is the renewing and restoring of all things. It leads to that kind of limited view of salvation that says, all we need is souls saved, rather than the redemption of all things, which is really what God is doing. Now, it involves people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and following him, but there's so much more about what God is doing in salvation. And you can't read the Bible from beginning to end and not see what God is doing in this restoring of all things back under his good reign. The reach of God's saving activity in Scripture is holistic, demonstrated most vividly in the birth, life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The one who stands with the poor, the excluded, the forgotten. The one who feeds and heals the bodies of the hungry and the sick. The one who speaks for justice and opposes the unjust, the oppressor, the power hungry. Who challenges the rich, the rulers, the religious. And instead embraces, eats with and welcomes the least, the last and the lost and invites all to follow him. The kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ are very earthy indeed. Actions, deeds, works are the demonstration and evidence of true faith in Jesus, which is true following of Jesus. Anything less is not really faith at all. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he writes this. And I deliberately start with the Apostle Paul. The only thing that counts, Paul writes, is faith expressing itself through love. Now, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of James. And those of you who are uh, used to theological debate will know that there are some questions that people ask between what Paul is saying and what James is saying in the New Testament. Well, I hope we resolve some of that, but not all of it in our time this morning. But actually, they're not that far from each other as some have suggested. Paul understands that faith must have its expression. It's not enough for faith to be on its own, but that faith works by expressing itself through love. So when we come to read the book of James, and we're just about to come on to the passage, James' purpose in this next section of Scripture that we're going to look at is to make sure that faith and works, what we do, our deeds, are never separated. We can't talk about faith without talking about works. We can't talk about works without talking about faith. It must be both and. They're inseparable. And any attempt to do otherwise, to separate them, not only dilutes faith, but actually, It begins to destroy and deny faith. So let's jump into James chapter 2 verse 14 which begins with a difficult question. What good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith, that is faith without deeds, save them? Can such faith Save them. Now the fact that the question assumes the answer to be no, that, that's what the question assumes, no, is quite unsettling. Because we're believers of, well, faith is, is, what, is what saves in Christ. Only faith, only Christ, only grace, only scripture, faith alone. So that sense that the question assumes the answer is no is quite unsettling. And the implication is that this kind of faith, and that's the important part, this kind of faith that is devoid or separated from works cannot save. Why? Because James argued, well, is it real faith if it's not producing works? Is it real faith if it's not doing? The sign or evidence of fruit of real faith is that it leads to works or deeds that look like the work and deeds of Jesus. They're aligned with the good, godly reign of Christ. And so, in Paul's words, he talks about faith expressing itself through love. In James, he talks about it, faith, true faith, expressing itself in deeds and works of that love. James is asking, what's the purpose of faith? What good is faith? Is it just for your own personal saving of your soul that then goes to some disembodied place that we call heaven up there and that's it? Well, that's an incorrect view of what God is doing in the restoration of all things. God is renewing the heavens and the earth. So, what does faith look like? What good is it? What's the purpose? Faith that has no works doesn't work. Faith that works is indeed faith that works. Well, what does this bogus faith or fake faith look like? This faith without works. Well, well, James sets up what scholars call a diatribe, but we probably call a scenario. You know, when you go to training at your workplace or something like that, there's always a trainer who says, "Now let's let's create a scenario." Well, in some ways, that's what James does here. He creates a scenario, and he goes on to say this: "Suppose brother or sister." This is verse 15. "Suppose brother or sister," and then usually here the Greek has both brother and sister. Normally, it just has brother. In fact, in Verse 14, it's just brother that it has, but here it has brother and sister in the Greek, recognizing the fact that it was often the women who were the ones who were most neglected, most without rights. So James writes, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What's the point of faith? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I mean, it's quite difficult to take for those of us in the evangelical tradition to read James. But he's talking about, well, what does real faith look like? It must, it must in the end roll out into works for it to be true faith. Now, this is easy to understand, the scenario that, that James puts in front of us. But it may be easy to understand, but it's not easy to change to be like that for all kinds of reasons. When we perhaps see someone who has a specific need, someone who is without clothes and daily food, we've just heard of some of the refugees who will arrive Who will have very little that they bring. What are we going to do about it? What does faith do in response to what we see around us? But we have all kinds of reasons why it's not easy for us to change. easy to understand what James is saying here. Not easy to necessarily do it. I have my own challenges. Well, I can't really commit to this at this point in time. I I can't help everyone. I don't have time. My own debts... Are off the charts. There's no way that I could afford to do anything. I've got my own lifestyle to maintain. And I really don't have the resources then myself. Not that we would ever admit any of these to anyone. Or we might even make assumptions or judgments, often ill informed. Well, that's always the case. And they always are like that. Why can't they do something about it themselves? I mean, some people are just lazy and selfish and chaotic. But generally, I think we just find it easier to justify inaction. See, nobody nobody knows when we're not doing something really. Nobody knows that we're not really doing anything. When we read these words though and hear them out loud, let me read it again. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? When we read it or hear it aloud, we immediately think, well, of course, this kind of spiritual response is contrary to the faith we hold to and the Jesus we follow. But in practice, A vocal expression of care and blessing is just easier. It's just easier to do. In the language of the church, we've often talked about two broad headings for the word sin or sins. We've spoken about the sins of commission, what we've done that we shouldn't have done, And we've spoken about the sins of omission. That is what we haven't done that we should have done. And James is really focusing on the second of these. We often focus on the first of them, especially when it's other people and what they've done, but not the second one, especially on our own lives. The sins of omission, the things that we haven't done that as followers of Jesus, we should have done. And this connects back to what we said a couple of weeks ago, when in uh, chapter uh, 1 and 2, we've been looking at the fact that we are to not just hear the word, but do it, put it into practice, specifically in relation to those who are in need to those who are distressed, to those who are poor, to those who are on the edges or forgotten. James talks about them in chapter one as widows and orphans, but it's a representation of those who are on the edges of society. The sins of omission. And James is really focusing in on this as, as Jesus followers, as those who say they have faith. There are things that we should be doing, and if we're not, that's just the same. That's the same sins as the sins of commission when we do things that we shouldn't. wonder if we were to examine our life. What would our faith look like in terms of expressing itself in love and good deeds? What would the sins of omission be? Well, James goes on, he's not done yet should have probably put a warning up at the beginning of this sermon saying that, that James is a bit brutal uh, during this passage. But he goes on to say, "But verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith. Fantastic. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. What's that mean? What's well, as if uh, some are faith people. That's the faith people. They just have faith. They don't do anything. They're just the faith people. And then over here, this is the deeds people. The deeds people, they do the stuff. Faith people, deeds people. That's not how faith works. We're not some are faith and some are deeds. We are faith and deeds people. We don't have some spiritual ones who always have something to say and advice to give and wisdom to offer, but don't actually do anything. And then somehow we have the deeds people We leave the doing and the action and the activity to them. But that's not real faith. That's not how faith works. That's not biblical faith. Faith is always accompanied by deeds. There's a doing that proceeds out of our faith. And James is saying faith without works is insufficient because it is a bogus faith. Surely our faith in Jesus must somehow change the way we live. But then, faith without works is insufficient as is works without faith. That's what we sometimes call works righteousness. Somehow we can earn or create our own salvation. It's both and. Well, James doesn't sob, which I'm sure you're very sorry about. He goes on to say, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. As if just a faith that believes in all of these things, these theological doctrines and all of that, but never leads into action and deeds. You believe that there's one God. Good, even the demons believe that and they shudder. James is picking up here on the confession of faith of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the Israelites from Deuteronomy. Chapter six and verse four, called the Shema. It was a confession, the Lord our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James is driving right to the core of Jewish confession of faith. He's running right to the core of doctrine for the Jewish people. And he's saying just having a confession of faith makes you no different from the demons. They agree with you. They agree with your confession of faith and they shudder because it's true. So just to have our faith that acknowledges the doctrines and the theology and the beliefs that we have, James says that's no different from the demons. Matthew 8:28 to 30, demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Mark 1:23 and 24, Jesus is acknowledged as the Holy One of God. Luke 4:31 to 37, the Holy One of God, they recognize Him. A faith that relies solely on a confession that even demons can make is no faith at all. That kind of acknowledgement without a change in direction and action in life, in what we do, in how we live, is not recognizable as true faith. Even the demons believe. Genuine, authentic faith necessarily results in the kind of deeds that look like Jesus. On this, Adewuia writes, those who claim to belong to God without enacting God's will, are in no way different from demons who do likewise. Let's get to some other scripture verses in the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Words are going to be on the screen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. This is And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, a foreigner, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, isn't that interesting that Jesus didn't list doctrine there? Now, let me tell you, I love theology. And doctrine is important. This is not an either and. This is a both and. And so Jesus speaks to them and says, what you do or don't do matters. And you'll be held accountable for it. That's what Jesus is saying. Which gets us a little bit nervous. But Jesus is not kidding. He goes on to say... Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothing and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me like we did it for christ it's like we did it to christ some commentators would say then he goes on going to the next verse sorry then he will say to them on his left depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels oh who's this for surely must be somebody else for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you didn't look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did I, we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to the eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus is not messing about. James is not messing about. They are making the link between faith and works. Works is an expression of our faith. And if the works aren't there, there's a question mark over whether we are really living into the faith that Christ has called us into. There's more. Our response, your response to the situations that we read in those verses from Jesus, our response to poverty, to asylum seekers and refugees, to addiction, to homelessness, to those in prison, to those without food, for those who have no clothing, really matters—not just for them, actually for you. Let's go on, um, Matthew seven twenty-one to twenty-three. Just while we're getting those scriptures up. Um, Annalie who's not here today uh, because she's, she's at a, a Young Lives uh, weekend. Young Lives is an organization uh, that works in Dundee. Annaly heads up the work there. Uh, and they, they've, they've made it their goal to try and fulfill this kind of call that Jesus places on our lives. They work with young mums uh, who've fallen pregnant, and uh, most of them teenagers, young teenagers. They're all away for a weekend now over at uh, Cairnbray. Cairnbrae, have I got that right? Yeah, Cairnbury. And uh, taking all of these teenage mums, who would probably not necessarily be getting out of Dundee much, and investing in their young lives, pointing them to Jesus, yes, but working with them from day to day and from week to week. It's amazing. That, that's just an example of, of this faith expressing itself in love, this faith and works, faith and deeds reality. Next scripture is from Matthew 7, 21 to 23. These are difficult words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me you evildoers. I mean, it's, we need to take a deep breath after that. And if the will of the Father is the restoration of all things, making things new in heaven and in earth, and he's calling us to participate in that, but actually we keep on committing the sin of omission. It's not well not really my job. Well, actually it is. And the consequence is just not a consequence for others, but we're held accountable for what we don't do as well as what we do. I think there's one more scripture in this. Matthew 8, 5 to 12, a centurion. So not a religious person expressing his faith and obedience in comparisons to the religious leaders. Um, So Matthew 8, 5 to 12. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. It was somebody from the outside that was showing what faith was like. But the subject, uh, say say to you, um, say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, the ones who thought they owned it, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you know, most of the language of accountability and judgment in the Bible is towards the people of God. It's warnings of what we don't do, that we should do, and of what we do do that we shouldn't. So it's not just James that is concerned about the faith without deeds, it's Jesus. Let me restate. My response, your response, our response to poverty, asylum seekers, addiction, homelessness, people in prison, those who have not, really matters, not just for them, but for you and for me. And for James, this is so basic that he, he erupts With an outburst of frustration. You fools. Chapter 2 verse 20. You fools. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did. When he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Let's talk about Abraham. Abraham is the father of the people of God. To whom God made a promise that he and his aging wife, Sarah, would have a son. And through him a nation would be born. Genesis 15, 4 and 5. And so it happened. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. And when the apostle Paul looks at this story, in his emphasis on faith alone, when he's dealing with those who think, that only works matter, that's Paul's context. He's dealing with people who are saying only works matter. Paul takes this part of the Abraham story and he uses this scripture to support his argument. It's all about faith. Just look at Romans 4, Galatians 3 for Paul's argument. He's dealing with a different problem from James. The problem he's dealing with is that people are saying, well, it's, all, it's only about works. Paul says, no, it's faith, faith alone. So Paul deals with it because, in a particular way because of what he's dealing with. But James points to a different part of Abraham's story. And it's, it's a difficult part of the story that he goes to. He goes to the story about Abraham and his promised son, Isaac, in Genesis 22. Abram takes his promised son, whom God now says must be given up, must be sacrificed. It's a horrible story. That Abraham must now give up and sacrifice his son. The promised son. And Abraham, believing and trusting God, prepares to do so. He starts to act in that direction. Now, God intervenes. Those of you who know the story, God intervenes, having witnessed Abraham's faith and action. But James uses this difficult story to show that faith and action work together. In fact, the word he used, working together, is the word synergy that we use when things come together to work together. And he talks about Faith becoming teleos, mature, complete, because of the actions that we do. Let's talk about Paul and James. Paul says faith alone is all that matters. It's the only thing that saves. But of course, Paul has in view the same kind of real faith, of genuine faith, as James does. Just look at Romans six through eight. And then look at Romans 12 onwards, even more so. It's all about that faith expressing itself in works. This faith is inextricably linked and expressed to and through what we do, how we live, deeds and works. Similarly, James is not saying your works can save you. He's saying that the presence of real saving faith in a person is visible faith expressed in deeds and works and if the deeds and works are not visible in their life then you need to examine the reality of your faith because it should result in action anything else is dead and james and paul are coming at things from different ends of the same issue paul addressing those who say It's what we do that matters, keeping laws, doing good, as if that can somehow save us or earn us into God's good books. But James is dealing with a different problem. He's addressing those who say it doesn't matter what you do. Just believe and that's enough. Well, apparently not. Actually, James and Paul are aligned in their vision of true faith, which is expressed in action. It's just that James is dealing with those who've settled for an easy, dead, bogus, fake faith. And that must be challenged. And he says, you see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith only. True faith expresses itself in Jesus-like works. So let me restate. Faith without works is insufficient, James. As is works without faith, Paul. And if you only focus on Paul, you become Pauline. Sorry, Pauline, if you're here. And if only you focus on James, you become Jamesine. But when we take both of them together, we follow Christ. Which is not Christine. It's Christian. Faith and works. Then James does something else. Having started with a giant of the faith, Abraham, he turns instead to the example of Rahab the prostitute, an unlikely candidate as a hero of faith. And so verse 25, in the same way, same as Abraham, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for, for, for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Let's talk about Rahab. We find our story in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua and his army are poised outside Jericho and he sends two spies on a recce into the city. They find lodgings with Rahab the prostitute. That would be an interesting study all in itself, but we'll leave it there for now. And James reminds us that she is a prostitute. Word comes to Rahab that she must give the men over to the king But because they're they're spies, but instead because of her faith in the Lord, she helps them escape. She acts. And in doing so, she spares their lives while putting her whole own life in danger. Then you go to Joshua chapter 6 to find out that Rahab is rescued. She's saved because of what she did, her faith and works in chapter 2. Both together, faith and works. And in the end, Rahab's great-great-grandson is King David. And therefore, you'll discover in Matthew chapter 1, part of Jesus' family life. There you go. Skeleton in the cupboard for Jesus. Prostitute in his family line. Why include Rahab alongside Abraham? Commentator Douglas Moo writes, Abraham the widely heralded hero and father of Israel is juxtaposed with the pagan women of loose reputation. But both the patriarch and the prostitute are declared righteous on the basis of works that issued from their faith. James is concerned that one possesses the right kind of faith, faith that works. Faith without that kind of faith becomes A barren orthodoxy and loses any right to be called faith. And so James concludes in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. That's a belter this morning, isn't it? Cheer you up on your way home. Now, for those of you who are familiar with church history and specifically the period of the Reformation in the 16th century with Martin Luther and John Calvin, all of this might feel a little bit uncomfortable. But actually, it's not the case. We read the Reformers wrongly when we drive a wedge between them. Martin Luther, from his preface to Romans, when all this stuff... (laughs) Will come out. This is how he begins his introduction, or this is how he has in his introduction. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith we have. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. This is Luther. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this. And is constantly doing those works. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. We kid our things if we think Luther didn't understand faith. And works. Some of you may recall that he used at one point a phrase that James is an epistle of straw, but in later in his life he withdrew that reference. The importance of both and. Our faith working itself self out in love. Because we're held accountable for the omissions as well as the commission. Faith and works is the Bible norm. And without one, we don't have the other. What a challenge. But it's a great challenge. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. And so I want to read a final scripture as a prayer over us using the words of the Apostle Paul. And they're going to be on the screen from Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Can I ask you to stand? See, the fruit of faith Is the very works that are like Jesus. Faith working itself out in love. So this is my prayer for you. And I'm just stealing it hook, line, and sinker from the Apostle Paul. This is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more In knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Faith that leads to fruit of righteousness fulfilling, discerning what is best as we seek the will of God as he brings all things back under his reign. God, come and set your rule and reign over our hearts and let this faith, this lively, vibrant, living faith live itself out in works of love and service, bringing your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.